There are so many Disney films to choose from, so we often reach for the most popular or well-known to satisfy a craving. Although it's well worth looking to the ones that maybe aren't as well-known, the underrated ones. Hi, I'm Michaela. And I'm Nicola, and welcome to the Female Female Film Film Fanatics Fanatics Podcast. Podcast. Where today we're looking at those Disney films you may have forgotten about, or they got lost in the noise. We're definitely excited, so let's jump right in. Enjoy your movie. Just one kiss. Just one. Unless you beg for more. Do you prefer Tangled or Frozen? My answer has always been The Princess and the Frog. I have an intense love for the old school, original, hand-drawn style of animation, and so the clean and crisp animation in this film hits me in my soul. It makes me quite sad that it's likely the last hand-drawn Disney movie that'll get made. Yeah, in terms of Disney films, I've always been a sucker for hand-drawn animation. While I'm no less impressed by computer animated films, I always get this warm, fuzzy feeling when I watch films like The Princess and the Frog. Yes, well for Frozen 2 is amazing in its animation, just as an example, there's something truly magical about hand-drawn films. Anywho, for anyone unaware, The Princess and the Frog tells the story of Tiana, who lives in New Orleans and dreams to one day open her own restaurant just like her dad had always wanted to. At a party, she encounters Prince Naveen, only he's a frog at the time. (laughs) He mistakes her for a princess and so asks her to kiss him. She does and turns into a frog. Hijinks ensue, and we see the two journey to a cure through the bayou while making some animal friends. It's such a fun film and feels like a fresh take on the Disney princess films, with Tiana being more relatable in her life and goals. Absolutely. Tiana is actually the first ever African-American Disney princess, and a fantastic main character. She's a hard worker who's giving her dream her all. On that note, there's a very interesting sort of essay by Lib Media about whether or not the film is a good representation of an African-American character, especially given she's a frog for most of the movie. I encourage you to check it out. It's called A Closer Look at the Princess and the Frog. Nicola and I aren't really qualified to comment on the film's depiction of race, so again, we encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Definitely, but I think we can agree that we love that Tiana is representing. Yes. (laughs) That being said, the soundtrack is phenomenal and features some of my favourite Disney songs ever. Yes, this actually ranks in my top five Disney films. It certainly helps that at times the characters move in time to the beat of the music, like so many of my most watched and loved in my childhood Disney films do. Also, Annika Noni Rose's voice is absolutely spectacular, and I would say anyone who hasn't seen the film should watch it, even if just for her performance. Yeah, the music is great for everyone. I think my two favourite songs have to be Almost There and Dig a Little Deeper. They are some great bops. Speaking of reasons to watch, it has one of the most fabulous villains ever. Dr. Facilier, who's voiced by Keith David, has an intriguing character design and perfect menacing attitude. Not to mention his fabulous song, which is my favourite of the movie, Friends on the Other Side. I got voodoo, I got voodoo, I got things I ain't even tried. 
got friends on the other side. He's got friends on the other side. Another great track. And now for some fun facts, courtesy of Oh My Disney. <laughs> the directors pitched the story of the film to Oprah on a trip to Disneyland, quote, just for fun. She loved it so much that she asked to be a part of it and voices Tiana's mother, Eudora. Anna Canoni Rose requested that Tiana be left-handed, just like her, and the animators also borrowed the look of her dimples for Tiana's character design. Achidanza, which is said by Naveen at many points in the film, is a made-up word in Maldonian and means cool. <laughs> Mama Odie is partially based off Yoda. <laughs> and finally, there was originally going to be a subplot where Lewis was actually a human who couldn't play any instruments, so went to Dr. Facilier, who turned him into a gator in the process. It was deemed too complicated, though. I personally prefer that he's just a gator with a gift. <laughs> Overall, The Princess and the Frog is a great addition to the Disney portfolio, and I hope we get more films like it. More diverse Disney princesses, please. Yes, please, Disney. We're practically begging. And with that said, let's move on. Which pet's address is the finest in Paris? Which pets possess the longest pedigree? Which pets get to sleep on velvet mats? Naturellement, the Aristocats. The Aristocats is one of Disney's lesser-known titles and is one of my personal favourites. It has this winning combination of graceful innocence, fantastic voices, great humour, and tremendous music. I just wish it was as loved as some of Disney's other titles. Yeah, as you well know, Nicola, I adore cats and kittens, and so The Aristocats makes me so happy. However, it wasn't one that I watched as a kid, so I only watched it in high school and instantly wished I had sooner. Definitely a great classic Disney edition. It definitely is. So, The Aristocats takes place in Paris, France in the 1910s. After a retired opera singer named Madame Adelaide gives her fortune to her cat Duchess and her three kittens, Marie, Berlioz and Toulouse, her jealous butler Edgar poisons their food with sleeping pills, then throws them to the countryside because if the cats die, he would be the next in line to inherit. Duchess and her kittens meet the smooth-talking alley cat Thomas O'Malley, who helps the family of cats travel back home. It's not exactly the Ritz, but it's peaceful and quiet. Now let me give you some quick facts. The film was based on a story by Tom McGowan and Tom Rowe, which revolves around a real Parisian family of cats who inherited a fortune back in 1910. The Aristocats was also the final film to be approved by Walt Disney and was the first to be completed after his death. It was also the last film to include the phrase, a Walt Disney production at the end. Also, the role of O'Malley was voiced by comedic actor and singer Phil Harris, who you may recognise as the voice of Baloo the Bear in Jungle Book and Little John in Robin Hood. I'm king of the highway, prince of the boulevard. 
The writers also let him change some of his lines in the Aristocats to better suit his personality. It should also be mentioned this was starlet actress Eva Gabor's first Disney credit as she voiced Duchess. I adore the voice acting in this film and instantly loved O'Malley because, as you said, Baloo's voice comes out of him. I think there's a bit of a theme with all the films we chose for this podcast. Awesome voice castings. I mean, it makes sense. It's so important. Now, just to sort of sum it up a bit, The Aristocats is a sweet story about a family of cats who have to learn survival skills. Duchess is a wonderful mother to her kittens, and that's her best quality. She has not experienced life outside of her privileged world, yet her survival instincts are put to the test, and Duchess demonstrates that she does not let her perpetual helplessness get in the way of protecting her children. The three kittens made the film with their antics of arguing and then getting into trouble. The standout kitten was Marie, who was low-key snarky and liked to cause fights. Ladies do not start fights, but they can finish them. O'Malley, although tough, is there to help the kittens and introduces Duchess to the world. Both Duchess and O'Malley teach each other remarkable lessons about family and survival. In terms of Disney villains, Edgar is controversial. He is betrayed as a sophisticated and polite butler, but underneath he is a scheming, greedy, impatient and egotistical man whose real personality is sparked when Madame Adelaide's fortune is mentioned. Even though he is highly manipulative and selfish, many people have empathy for him. It would have been easy for him to kill the cats, but instead he kidnaps them and leaves them in the Parisian countryside. Although it was somewhat merciful for him to let the cats live, let's not forget that he drugged them and left them in unknown territory for death. rock a it is, bye-bye you go. La 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 la, and I'm in the dough. Oh, Edgar, you sly old fox. I think there's also something truly evil about Edgar knowing that he looked after the cats for so long yet he was so quick to go against them when it was in his best interest. Yeah definitely his true character came out then. Now the rest of the supporting cast are all very funny and fleshed out characters with their own motivations and stakes for their actions. I particularly love the characters of the mouse Rockford, also the voice of Winnie the Pooh, the hilariously militant basset hounds Napoleon and Lafayette, the smooth scat cat and the drunken goose Uncle Waldo. Sitting white wine. <clears throat> Basted. He's been marinated in it. Overall, the music, art, and characters in the movie are genuinely charismatic and inviting. Hand-drawn cartoons, as we said before, are pretty much extinct now, so going back to watch films like The Aristocats is a real treat. I love the songs, while not Disney's best, are still very good and relatively memorable, and all performed well thanks to the excellent voice acting in this film with Phil Harris and Ava Gabor. So my word of advice is to give The Aristocats a go, and hopefully see that it's been unfairly dismissed among Disney's catalogue. I'm the leader i'll say when it's the end it's the end now some of you may ask why atlantis it's just a myth isn't it pure fantasy well that is where you'd be wrong Atlantis The Lost Empire is one of those films that came out when Disney let some of its animators essentially kind of do whatever they wanted to do, and so we got films like Lilo and Stitch and Atlantis The Lost Empire. These are some of the Disney films I remember in the fondest way. Atlantis, as I and many call it for short, follows Milo Thatch as he kind of leads an expedition to discover what happened to the lost city of Atlantis. It features an extraordinary voice cast and is one of the Disney films that the internet 
internet desperately wants Disney to make a live action movie for. And it's not hard to see why. The witty humour and authentic nature of all the performances draws you in and you get thoroughly stuck in to the story and fantasy as a result. Michael J. Fox as Milo is lovable, caring and so dorky and enthusiastic you can't help but want to hug him. The rest of the cast is so strong and gives such great performances that you might be forgiven for not realising that Leonard Nimoy voices the Atlantean King. Altogether, the cast gives such incredible performances that I really urge you to watch it if you haven't and watch it again if you have to experience the wonder and honestly amazingness that is Atlantis. You know, that's what this is all about, right? I mean, discovery, teamwork, adventure. Unless maybe you're just in it for the money. 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 I'm going to say money. I recently just watched this movie again on Disney Plus and it reminded me of why I fell in love with it in the first place. I mean, the characters and especially the world they created was spectacular. Absolutely. This is one Disney film that actually isn't a musical. It focuses on the character relationships and action, which is more than enough to keep the audience entertained, but is maybe why it's not considered one of Disney's best even though in my opinion it is. <laughs> yeah, but from those who have seen it, like Michaela and I, they absolutely love it. Atlantis has a loyal fan base. Absolutely. And now for a few fun facts, courtesy of Epic Dash. <laughs> the film is set in 1914, and the weaponry you see used is accurate to that time period. The Atlantean language was made by the same person who developed the Klingon language for the Star Trek films. It's also read in a sort of zigzag pattern, which is called the Boustrophedon style. <laughs> At the time of its release, Atlantis used more CGI than any other Disney animated film, and the crew travelled 800 feet, or 243 metres, underground in New Mexico's Carlsbad Caverns to see subterranean trails. And finally, the final scene was created by combining a lot of pieces of paper, making up the equivalent of 18,000 inches, or over 45,000 centimetres, of paper, and was then combined with animated flying vehicles to make up the visual we see in the final film. I love how Atlantis combines CGI, traditional animation, and then the lots of pieces of paper as well. I mean, that's pretty innovative. And speaking of innovation... I fix it, you take me back to see my mom. I love, love, love Meet the Robinsons. It's a guilty pleasure. I watch it openly. <laughs> I love it so much. Same here, it's a great film. So it follows 12-year-old Orphan Lewis, who has no luck in being adopted because of his constant quest to find his birth mother. He invents a memory scanner, which is a device that scans your brain to project your memories onto a screen. And when the project goes awry at a science fair by the evil bowler hat guy, yes, that is his name, and Doris, Lewis is discouraged. Then he gets a visit from a boy named Wilbur, who takes him to the future where Lewis meets Wilbur's weird family and gains courage to keep moving forward. My project didn't work because I'm no good. There is no bowler hat guy, there is no time machine, and you're not from the future. You're crazy! While I think this film is so unique, fun, and deeply underrated, this movie came out during an awkward phase for Disney. Some other films released during this period were Bolt, 
Home on the Range and Chicken Little, which are by no means bad films, but they were competing with Pixar, who was just killing the animated family film market. Keep moving forward is the motto of Mr. Robinson, the patriarch of this futuristic family, and encapsulates the film's theme really well. At one point in the movie, Lewis asks Wilbur what his dad looks like, which prompts Wilbur to say that his father Cornelius looks like Tom Selleck. When we do see Cornelius, he looks nothing like Selleck. However, keen listeners were quick to recognise the voice actor for Cornelius. It was Tom Selleck himself. The scene was written first, which prompted the production to contact Selleck to play Cornelius, which he was happy to do. I never thought my dad would be my best friend. Another fun fact was that the film literally acts as an advertisement for other Disney movies. In the scene with Lewis's roommate Goob at his important baseball match, we see a couple of posters sticking to the fence at the far edge of the field. One of the posters shows Mowgli and Baloo from The Jungle Book. The other poster features Jesse from Toy Story. Gotta get that in-movie advertisement. <laughs> also, I have to admit, the whole keep moving forward thing actually made me tear up, especially at the end with the reveal of the whole quote, which I won't spoil. I know, it's such a heartwarming film. Now, just before I sum up, I want to comment quickly on the music, which was really great. The standout song was by the fantastic Rob Thomas with the track Little Wonders, played at the end, which coordinated beautifully with the story's ending. And you also had the wonderful score by Danny Elfman who captured the 1950s futuristic style. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's what people in the 1950s saw the future looking like. Now, Meet the Robinsons is a beautifully unexpected combination of wild and absurd humour, eye-popping visuals with genuine emotional depth. While it is the love child of Back to the Future, the Jetsons and the Incredibles, it still feels completely original. Absolutely. I love how they managed to combine so many elements into a coherent story and how Lewis and all the other characters feel like real people. Humor and all. Why is your dog wearing glasses? Oh, because his insurance won't pay for contacts. Now normally in Disney, the central character is a motherless, fatherless, or parentless young person. However, in Meet the Robinsons, it is not merely a character trait that leaves Lewis to embark on his own adventure. In reality, his orphan status and search to locate the mother who abandoned him at the orphanage when he was a baby is really the core of his journey. It is not a sickly sweet animated flick due to its unending stream of eccentric characters and plot twists. Of course, a story like this wouldn't work without a fantastic villain. The filmmakers created a bumbling bad guy who was simultaneously amusing, sympathetic, and just menacing enough to keep the suspense running. Everyone will tell you to let it go and move on, but don't. Instead, let it fester and boil inside of you. The Meet the Robinsons is filled with enough heart, quick fire humour, and blink and you'll miss the moments to make it worth watching. Definitely one that I absolutely adore. Nothing is set in stone. You gotta make the right choices and keep moving forward. And now to talk about one that I adore just as much. Remember what I've taught you, Quasimodo. You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. You do not comprehend. You are my one defender. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is one of those Disney films that makes me feel excited every single time I watch it. It's got stunning visuals, epic songs, and a terrific story. The film tells the story of Quasimodo, a deformed bell ringer in Notre Dame who isn't allowed to go outside courtesy of the rules placed on him by Claude Frollo, who, let's just say it, is one of the creepiest and realistically evil Disney villains of all time. 
And gypsies don't do well inside stone walls. I was just imagining a rope around that beautiful neck. Why I see her dancing there, why her smoldering eyes still scorch my soul. I feel her, I see her. I'm placing you and your family under house arrest. Burn it until it smolders. The time has come, Gypsy. You stand upon the brink of the abyss. Yet even now it is not too late. I can save you from the flames of this world and the next. Choose me for the fire. Quasimodo breaks free from his sadness, essentially, and meets a charming gypsy girl, Esmeralda. Another one I watched recently on Disney+, and I forgot how dark this one got. Particularly any scene involving Frollo, I definitely agree with you, Michaela. I think he's one of the most menacing villains of all time in Disney. Yes, truly despicable. <laughs> Just like Atlantis, this film boasts an incredible voice cast, including Tom Hulse as Quasimodo, Demi Moore as Esmeralda, Kevin Klein as Phoebus, Jason Alexander as Hugo, Tony Jay as Frollo, and Paul Kandel as Clopin, which for the entirety of this podcast, maybe I'll just insert a voice clip of him saying it. Clopin. By the way, Clopin wasn't meant to sing the introductory song of the film. However, when Paul Kendall recorded Topsy Turvy, the studio loved his voice so much that they gave him the intro track. A very good decision, as it's truly incredible to listen to. Some say the soul of the city is the toll of the bell. The bells of All the singing voices in this film were incredible. While I loved Bells of Notre Dame for setting up the film, I really loved Quasimodo's ballad out there. It is a beautiful number. Absolutely, definitely one of Disney's greatest, I think. (laughs) And now for some fun facts, courtesy of Mental Floss. Frollo's job was changed to avoid offending religious groups. In the Victor Hugo novel, he's an archdeacon, but Disney changed him to a judge. Some scenes, like the Feast of Fools and the Climax, have digital Parisians. They sure fooled me. (laughs) Get that pun? (laughs) Belle from Beauty and the Beast makes a cameo. While Quasimodo is singing out there, she can be seen walking through the streets with her nose stuck in a book through the character. And much to my delight, you can also see someone shaking dust from Aladdin's magic carpet in the same scene. Disney puts you to work in their films. I'll have spent one day out And for our last film on the podcast, it's another nostalgic treat. Pull the lever, Grunk. Emperor's New Groove is a childhood favourite. I have never gotten sick of it and it still brings me joy every time I watch it. To show you my commitment, when I was little, I would tune into Emperor's New School on Disney Channel and I am not a fan of Disney Channel. I think it's one of Disney's finest films and I enjoyed it for breaking all the cliches and conventional uses of Disney imagery and storytelling. Yes! Whenever I feel sad, I know I can put on Emperor's New Groove and have my mood lifted instantly, even with just the simple opening music. Definitely. Now, for those of you who haven't seen it, it goes like this. Cusco is a young emperor of an ancient Incan civilization and is an arrogant and selfish tool. 
He wants to tear down an old village led by Parcher to build his vacation getaway and water slide. Kuzco's advisor, Yizma, however, has different plans to kill the emperor and begin her own reign. Her lackey, Kronk, doesn't follow Yizma's orders to poison Kuzco, instead turns him into a llama and hilarity ensues. What? A llama? He's supposed to be dead! While it's an enjoyable film to watch, it wasn't an enjoyable film to make. Emperor's New Groove had multiple rewrites when no one was happy with the end result. It was originally titled The Kingdom of the Sun and had music written by Sting. The movie was more serious and Yizma was creepy, not funny, and even had a villain song which is available to listen to on YouTube. While we can ponder over what might have been, I think the film benefited much more from becoming a comedy and parody, which made it more timeless. Absolutely. I can't even imagine Yzma as a serious villain. Give me her exacerbation at Kronk failing to poison Cusco properly any day. How about dessert? Well, I suppose there's time for dessert. And coffee. Alright, a quick cup of coffee. Then take him out of town and finish the job! I love the lead character of Cusco because he isn't initially likeable and that's refreshing for Disney. The guy literally sings a song praising himself in the beginning. Instead of being this idealistic ingenue hero, his petulance and selfishness sets him up to be humble. Alrighty, trot out the ladies. Let's take a look-see. Hate your hair. Not likely. Yikes, yikes, yikes. And let me guess, you have a great personality. Yzma is a wonderful villain. My favourite parts of Disney films are the villains, and Yzma does not disappoint. Eartha Kitt's voice work is impeccable and oozes malevolent intent, which enhances Yzma's evil streak. She's not only Cusco's advisor, but also a de facto mother to him. She is starved for power and will truly stop at nothing to seize the throne. Ah, how shall I do it? Oh, I know. I'll turn him into a flea. A harmless little flea. And then I'll put that flea in a box. And then I'll put that box inside of another box. And then I'll mail that box to myself. And when it arrives, <laughs> I'll smash it with a hammer. It's brilliant, 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 I tell you. Genius, I say. Or to save on postage, I'll just poison him with this. In contrast to Yzma, Pacha is one of Disney's most endearing characters who believes in the good of everybody and never abandons anyone. The way he interacts with his family and others makes him a great character to look up to. I also think his and Cusco's relationship is the heart of the film, as Pacha steps in as a parental figure for Cusco after Yzma's betrayal. Their teamwork, banter and emotion drive this film. Uh-oh. Don't tell me. We're about to go over a huge waterfall. Yep. Sharp rocks at the bottom? Most likely. Bring it on. I also love Kronk. He is dim but shines in so many ways. He loves to cook. He's a wildlife enthusiast, showing us his pro skills at bird watching and squirrel conversing. He is a large, ripped, disproportionately sized kid who hums his own theme music. He is constantly in conflict with himself about good and evil, which is demonstrated through him debating with the angel and devil on his shoulder. Oh, right. The poison. The poison for Cusco. The poison chosen specially to kill Cusco. Cusco's poison. That poison? Yes, that poison. Emperor's New Groove is a unique film with emotional layers and comedic elements, and even as an adult, this film never gets old. Truly, it's just one of those films that you can always enjoy. You were saying? What's his name? Cusco! 
Do you agree with our pick of movies? Were there others that you thought were better? Let us know by tweeting us at ffilmfanatics. Also, in case you've missed it, we've just introduced our new logo designed by the talented Charlotte Galvin. So make sure you follow her at charles underscore mitts on Twitter. Make sure you catch up on our last seven episodes on Spotify or Anchor, the ever-growing list. And tune in for the next podcast, Best Sequels. Ooh. <laughs> this is Michaela. And Nicola. And this has been the Female, Female Film Fanatics, Fanatics Podcast. Podcast.